I want to invite you guys to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 verses 11 to 18 is the passage we're going to consider this morning. We've been working our way through this letter slowly but surely since the beginning of the year. If you're visiting with us, I want to especially welcome you and thank you for being here. I said that earlier and, uh, and, and invite you to take one of the Bibles we've provided at the center of each aisle. If you don't have one of your own, we'd love for you to take that as our gift to you. And we'd love to talk to you about what we're going to, what we're going to discuss from the scriptures this morning. It's really helpful in the studies that we do on Sunday mornings if you have it in front of you. Because we're going to be referring back to some things that are in the text and uh, it's just a lot easier if you don't have to take my word for it, but we can look down and actually see it for yourself and, and track along with us. So would love, just flag somebody down who's sitting on the center if you don't have a Bible, uh, center of the aisle, and they'll pass one down to you. <clears throat> I read somewhere uh, recently that 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by mid-February. That was like a month ago. How are yours doing? I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. Tempted to, not going to do it. But that rang true for me. And it's not, hard to, it's not hard to understand why New Year's resolutions fail. And we have, a lot of, uh, we have a lot of shorthand references for this. Talk is cheap, right? Put your money where your mouth is, we say. Easier said than done, we say. These phrases are all getting at something all of us have experienced. That uh, it's just a lot easier to make plans than it is to act on those plans. It's a lot easier to talk than it is to do. And John knows this, and that's what he's getting at in the passage we're going to look at this morning. He's, he's writing to his friends to try to help them understand what genuine Christianity is. Because there, was compete, there were competing versions of Christianity going around in this community. And, and he wanted to help them separate the counterfeit from the true. And he's been doing that all through this letter. But in the part that we come to this morning, what he's pointing to is the fact that true Christianity always shows up in, in your life. That true Christianity involves words that you say and affirm, but that it goes much deeper than what comes out of your mouth. So in in the passage we looked at last week, John drew this really stark contrast between people who were born of the devil, he said, and people who were born of God. So everybody in the world, he thinks, is either a person born of the devil or a person born of God. How do you tell who's who? Well, he says, those who are born of God are righteous, like God is righteous. And then in verse 10, the last verse we considered last week, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. Now, it sounds kind of like a a tack-on phrase at the end of that verse, but it launches John into the section we're going to consider this morning where where he talks about love, where he tells us that that if you're born of God, you're going to look like your daddy. And looking like your daddy when your daddy is God is to love other people because God is love. That's the simple claim at the heart of the text we're going to look at this morning. The central sign of genuine Christianity, according to John, is love. What I want to do from these verses this morning is try to help you understand why love matters so much, what love actually is, and where love shows up in our lives, why it matters, why it's the central sign, what, what we're actually even talking about 
when, when we talk about love in John's terms and then where that love shows up in our lives. Those three things. I want to begin by reading a few verses for you this morning. Would you please stand with me as I read in honor of God's word, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 3. John writes, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet it closes his heart against them. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. You can be seated. If anything comes out of this text, it's, this, it's the clear claim that love is what matters for separating genuine Christianity from counterfeit versions of it. John is making that really clear. Even in verse 11, he's reminding you that from the beginning, the very first thing you heard, what you were taught when you became Christians, he's writing to his friends, that message that you've heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. I think he has in mind at least partly Jesus' own words. In John's gospel, chapter 13, on Jesus, one of Jesus' Uh, last conversations that he had with his disciples who he was going to send out to, to launch the church into being. He was telling them that the, the thing that you should know, the way that, that, that people will know me through you is by your love looking like my love. You'll love one another in the way that I loved you and, and then people will know that you're my disciples. Love one another. So right there at the very beginning, even before Jesus' death, They'd been taught this message that we should love one another. He, he makes the point even more clearly, I think, in verse 14. He says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. For John, that's just a way of saying we know we're Christians. We know that something's happened in us, supernatural, to change us from people living in death to people who've been born again of God. And how do we know that we've passed from from living in death into a new spiritual life, we know it when we love the brothers. But why is this the sign that we've passed from death to life? Why is this how we know that we've been born of God? Why does love matter so much as this key sign? I've already mentioned it, but just to, to pound this again, it matters because what it is to pass from death to life is to be born of God when you're born of God, John has just said earlier in this chapter, you look like God looks. You reflect something of his beauty and his character in the world. And his beauty and his character comes through in his love. A little bit later uh, in chapter 4, John makes the same point again. 
Even more clear, I think, in that passage. He says, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. He's talking about love for, other, for others as, as part of God's essence. It's who he is. So if you're going to be born of him, then inevitably, not just, not just as an ideal, but as a reality that's really not even on you, the natural course of things is that when you've passed into life, born of God, you'll start to look like him. God is love, you'll start to love. Simple cause and effect. I wonder how you would define what a genuine Christian is. I, I, uh, one of the most interesting, helpful books that I read right before becoming a pastor is a book called Contemporary Christian by a pastor who's dead now. Uh, he was pastor in London for a long time. His name was John Stott. He talks about, uh, about love as the central mark in the New Testament for what a Christian looks like, not just for John. John's not the only one who talks about that, but also for Paul. One of the most famous chapters in the New Testament about love is, is uh, from one of Paul's letters. The first letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is a, a passage that's often read at weddings. It's a passage that's all about love. And it's almost like Paul is, is trying to set apart love in this chapter from other things we might emphasize. If somebody were to ask us, what's a true Christian? How could you recognize him? There's a list of things that, that we might point to. All of them really, really important, but none of them the essence, none of them the true mark. Stop using uh, 1 Corinthians 13 highlights them and I wonder I wonder if you might see yourself from this list so some people if they were asked uh, what is the essence of Christianity what is a true Christian some people might would point to the truth that they affirm doctrine their understanding of the Bible and they're not wrong truth is central even John's letter here has talked about how important it is that you get who Jesus is that that everyone who uh, who, who says that Jesus is the Christ the son of God has been born again by his spirit and those who reject Jesus as the son of God are, are those who, who haven't been born again. He's, he's made truth claims really important for how you recognize a Christian. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if I have all knowledge and if I can understand all mysteries but have not love, I'm nothing. The truth matters. Knowledge, things that you, that you believe or affirm, it matters. It's not enough. Other people might emphasize faith. The way to tell a true Christian is that they believe, like they are confident in the promises that have been made to them. They are claiming them. And of course, faith is essential. There's no other way to claim God's gift of grace in Jesus. You can't earn his grace, that's for sure. You've got to claim his promises by faith. It's, it's absolutely central. But Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, if I have faith that moves mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Others might emphasize experience. You know, a true Christian, because they don't just talk about Jesus. They don't just affirm things they believe about Jesus. They actually experience something. When they come to worship, they are moved. Their emotions ring out. And of course, we talk about that all the time here. What we're after is not just a kind of cognitive understanding of God, but something that we experience from the heart. All relationships work that way. You have to experience somebody. Not just learn about them, but know them. And the, the New Testament celebrates that. But Paul says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy, these incredible experiences, 
but I don't have love. I'm nothing. Others emphasize service, as they should. The New Testament tells us faith without works is dead. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about how important it is to love, not just in our, with our words and with the things we say, but in our deeds. Serving, especially those who are in great need, is one way we reflect Jesus who came and served people in great need, who came to pe- preach freedom to the captives and hope for the poor and called his disciples to be like them. Jesus says, I mean, even the son of man, even me, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And you should too. But Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, if I give everything I have to the poor and even give up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. All these things matter. It matters what truth you affirm. It matters that you have faith that claims God's promises. It matters that you experience something, not just talk about something, but actually experience Him in relationship. It matters that you serve other people as He did, but any of these things apart from love is is something other than true Christianity. The primary mark of somebody born of God is love because the primary mark of who God is is love God is love that's why love matters so much for us most verses though in this section that we're going to look at this is going to take us into the details a little bit more deeply most of most of this section is meant to try to help us see what love is it's meant to help define for us the kind of love that shows up in the life of a genuine Christian this, is, this, this passage is not just about telling us how important it, love is. It's not, a, it's not just a tell passage. It's a show passage. Show, don't tell. It's going to show us. What is love? How could we know? And John, one of the things we've noticed in John's letters is that he loves to show things through contrasts. He loves either ors. So he's talked about light versus darkness and life versus death and love versus hate and God versus the devil and truth versus lies. And here he gives us another contrast to help us see what love is. The contrast that he draws in this passage for most of the verses that we're going to look at is the difference between Cain and Jesus. Two models. Cain showing us what love isn't. Don't be like that. And Jesus showing us what love is. If you're born of God, this is what your life will show. So what do we learn from Cain and what do we learn from Jesus about what love is? Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, John writes, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Remember what what the passage just before ours says. You're either born of God or you're born of the evil one. Cain's an example of someone born of the evil one. Here's what that looks like. Then Jesus as an example of someone born of God, what he looks like. So, What does it look like to be born of the evil one? Well, it looks like killing your brother. So, noted. Don't kill your brothers. Got it. Love is not killing your brother. So anything less than not killing my brother is is sort of fair game? Clearly not. I mean, what John is interested in is not not just that he killed his brother, but why? He wants to look under the surface. What What was in Cain's heart that drove him to do this thing? I mean, how can you kill your brother? It's unthinkable in the terms of the Bible that it would come to this, especially so quickly in the story of the Bible. Cain for Israel had become something like what we refer to Hitler as today. It's just this this prototype of, of evil, this image of it, 
of, of what we mean by, by what not to be. Cain had become that kind of, taken on that kind of legendary status for Israel. And, and the story that, that, he, that, that, uh, uh, that John is referring back to uh, is written for us in Genesis chapter 4. It's pretty soon after the creation of the world. Adam and Eve, these prototype figures created at the beginning of all things to interact with God and to, to have children and spread the, uh, the, the reflection of God throughout the world. And Cain was their child. So was Abel, his brother. That story uh, is told in Genesis 4. It tells us that, the story tells us that, that Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God. They were, they were honoring him in each in their own way, or at least pretending to, that God accepted Abel's sacrifice. He was pleased by it. He was not pleased by Cain. He rejected what Cain offered him. And in response to that, Cain kills his brother, why? That's what John's really interested in. Why did he murder him, verse 12 says. And what John points us to here, a couple of motives that are actually a lot more everyday and mundane than the experience of murder. They're motives that are in each one of our hearts. The first one, first reason that Cain murdered his brother was Envy. So, John says, he murdered him because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You kind of have to know the story to know what he's pointing to there. It's clear in the story that Cain looks at Abel's accepted sacrifice, at God being pleased with Abel, and he wants that. It's not so much that he wants righteousness. It's not that he wants to be better than what he is. He wants to be affirmed. He wants to be accepted. He wants success. And he doesn't have it. He envies the fact that his brother has it. It burns him up. He can't take it. He wants what his brother had and kills him because he doesn't have it himself. Cain murders his brother because of envy. Then John points out hate. Verse 15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I think, it's, I think one way to think about the difference between envy and hate would be to think of envy as seeing something someone else has and wanting them not to have it wanting it for yourself. And hate is being seeing someone and wanting ill for them, wanting harm for them, wanting for them things you would never want for yourself. Envy is wanting for yourself something they already have. Hate being wanting for them things you would never want for yourself. And what ties them both together is that it's both looking at somebody else as different from you, as a life that's less worthy than yours less worthy of protection, less worthy of joy and happiness, less worthy of dignity, less valuable. And ultimately, when it comes to murder, it's just really clear, less worthy of life is to look at somebody else as fundamentally different from you, as an other with no way to bridge the gap. And when you look at somebody like that, fundamentally different from you, less worthy of enjoying what you enjoy, of having what you want for yourself, when you look at someone as an other in that way, then the natural next step is to either see them as a resource that you want to exploit for yourself or as a threat to what's good for you that you need to neutralize. And that's exactly what happened with Cain and Abel. Love, or hate, envy, Cain's model for us, looks at other people and wants ill for them. Love 
looks at other people and says, my life for yours. Hate says, your life for mine. Sometimes hate says, your life or mine. It's me or you. Love looks at them and says, my life for yours. Love moves the opposite direction. Love identifies my interests with your interests so we rise and fall together. We're going to thrive or we're going to struggle together. But where we go, we go together. Love identifies with someone else. Cain is showing us what it looks like to separate from someone else. So in verse 16, John gives us what he really wants us to notice, which is the positive model for what love is, a model that Jesus has given to us. He says, by this we know love. What is love? He's talked about it as the thing that, we, that marks those who pass from death to life. But what is it? Here's how you know. By this we know love, verse 15 says, or 16 says, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. So Cain looks at what his brother has and wants it. Cain looks at his brother and hates him for having what he wants. Cain despises his brother's life and takes it away. But Jesus, Jesus looks at people in need. He looks at people who are desperate and hopeless and guilty and shameful and he feels their pain as his. And he lays down his life for theirs. What is love, you ask? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. John has said God is love and here we know what he means. Some of us think of ourselves as loving people because we love the people who are close at hand I think all of us tend to love people that uh, that that we're closely related to or friends that we have meaningful relationships with especially love other people when it's easy to love them when they're clearly meeting a need that we feel or when they offer some sort of resource that's important to us when they affirm the things that we want to have affirmed about ourselves. But the kind of love that looks like God's love is is very different from this. It's not the kind of love that ever happens naturally. It's always a miracle. This kind of love shows up in Jesus who looks down on people who have fallen into a pit they dug for themselves, who looks on people who are hopeless because they've rejected him as their hope who looks on people, to use the language of the New Testament, who've made themselves his enemies. They're actually opposing him, whether they realize it or not. To see them opposing him in their need and to lay his life down for theirs. This is an an altogether otherworldly kind of love. And friends, this is the gospel that's offered to you this morning. You might be thinking, that people, the only people who have hope are people who haven't done what you've done. That, that the ship has already sailed for you. Maybe that's what you're telling yourself, even if you wouldn't have put those words to it. That you can never roll back what you've already done or said. And in a, in a sense, friends, you're, you're right if that's what you're wondering about. If that's what you're feeling, there's some truth in it. The Bible says that you were made to reflect God's image, to live your life in, in worship and service of him and you haven't done that not perfectly so what your conscience tells you if you're experiencing shame this morning is, is, is true the message of the gospel doesn't sugarcoat that it doesn't, it doesn't have to pretend like that's not true it doesn't have to tell you 
that you're better than what you think you are because you aren't. You're actually far worse than what you've ever imagined. The message of the gospel is that God loves you anyway. That God is love. And that what his love looks like is to take people who don't deserve it, people who can never right the wrongs they've done, people who can't roll back what's already happened, people whose life is off the rails because that's where they sent it, to look at them, to recognize it fully, to fully recognize the weight of that offense, the scale of that debt, and to pay it down all the way to the end. The message of the gospel is that the God who made you, the same God you've lived in denial of, entered this world as a human, took on a body that's just like ours, lived a perfect life that all of us should have lived but haven't, died the death that we were meant to die as a penalty for our sin and lives again now because he paid for it fully. And that Jesus, by whom we know love, offers you freedom this morning. If you'll trust in this Jesus rather than try to make up for what you've done yourself, if you'll accept his grace rather than try to avoid it, if you will let his love wash over you rather than resisting it or offering some cheap alternative, you can leave this room this morning a new person, born of God. God is love. And when we're born of God, verse 16 says, then we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's what love is. Love is seeing needs of others and treating them like your own. Love is seeing others' deficits and matching them to your resources. Love is using whatever you have at your disposal for whatever your brother needs. Love says, my life for yours. And it flows down the stream of God's love for us. One pastor put I love, I love a couple other metaphors for this, for what John is saying, I think, by saying, when, when he says that because, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I think what he's giving us is our marching orders in Christian community, that that, that Christian community is our opportunity to reflect our love for God who has loved us so well. That he, uh, this one pastor describes the church as a kind of sail on a ship that catches the wind of God's love as it blows from one Christian to another Christian to another Christian. We catch this, this wind and we take flight. God's love echoing back and forth between us in our community or it describes the community another another metaphor it describes the community as this blank canvas our relationships with each other are the canvas on which we paint our love for God your life is an opportunity for me to display my love for God because the God who is love has given me new life born again born of God now I get to to love him in you And that's what our calling is as Christians, is to lay down our lives as an expression of our love for God. You can't say that you love God whom you haven't seen and not love your brothers who you have seen. It just doesn't happen that way, John says a little later on. And we do this not not because we have to or to make make God love us, to try to get him on our side. We do it because he is love and we're born of him. He already loves us, so we love one another. That's, where, that's what love is. I want to spend the few more minutes that we've got this morning talking about where love shows up. 
We've seen why love matters. We've seen what it is. It says my life for yours. What I have is yours. I match my resources to your needs when I love you. That's what love is, modeled on Jesus' love for us. But where does that actually show up in our lives? John points us there at the end of, his, of this passage. I want to make sure it's clear to you. And, and it's dangerous, I think, at this, just at this point, because love as an ideal is a lot easier than love in reality. This is where we started this morning, talking about how, how talk is easy. Talk is cheap. Easier said than done. Love is never easy. Love is deadly. Love kills in the sense that love calls us to lay down our life for others. That, that true life comes through our willingness to lay down our lives as Jesus did for us. Love, love as an ideal is good insofar as it goes. It just doesn't go nearly far enough. And John wants to make us aware that, that, that love that looks like Jesus' love always shows up. Love is always local, always concrete, always specific. I mean, at one level, it's easy to talk about willingness to, to die for somebody else because you probably won't be asked to. So if you take verse 16 really literally, by this we know love, he laid down his life for us, so we ought to be willing to lay down our lives for each other, then it's kind of like, a misreading of the Cain example too. Okay, so what you're telling me is love shows up when I don't kill anyone and when I'm willing to die for you. And that's gonna be a love that's just not, not gonna ask anything of you on most days from most people, right? John means far more than that. What he means is it, it, it's never something that, that you just slap on a t-shirt in solidarity with some global cause and then move on about your day. It's easy to talk about your willingness to die when there's little chance you're going to be asked to. Kind of like it's easier to wear some sort of love-proclaiming t-shirt than it is to love a parent who's wounded you or a boss who demands the world and takes you for granted or, or a socially awkward small group member who's difficult to talk to. It's always easier to project love than it is to actually practice it. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H, than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. <laughs> loving everybody in general, he says, may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. So where does love show up? Well, it shows up when you're standing face to face with somebody else in need, always. When you look at their pain and you feel it as yours. When you recognize their need and you pay it down with your resources as if it's yours. Or in John's words, love shows up when you don't close your heart. Verse 17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So he's gone from the high-flying by this we know love, he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for each other straight into an application that leaves none of us off the hook. If anyone has the world's goods, we have them, friends, and sees his brother in need, and it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Closing your heart, what, a, what an image closed or open heart 
to close your heart is to protect yourself from feeling, from wanting, from carrying their mess in your life. To open your heart is to make yourself vulnerable to their vulnerability. So it's not just theirs anymore, now it's yours. Their needs are not their needs, they're your needs. Your resources are not your resources, it's their resources. So if Cain's model was showing us what it is to look at somebody else as an other, their needs, their resources, I want for myself. Jesus' model is teaching us how to view someone else as if they were yours. And when you see somebody else's life as different from yours, as less valuable, less worthy of protection, worthy of investment, less precious, then what you're showing is that God's love just just doesn't abide in you. It goes back to what we said at the top. Love is the central sign of a true Christian, of somebody who's born of God. When you love God, when you're born of God, you love what God's lo- God loves. And God loves everyone who's made in his image. He loves everyone who's made in his image so much that he sent his own son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. So how do we move past love in word and talk to love in deed and truth? Love that looks like his. I think John is pointing us first to other believers. It starts right around you in your Christian community. He talks about brothers over and over here. That's a a shorthand way of talking about other Christians. And it harkens back to what Jesus said. Jesus had said that, that, that people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Pointing to the fact that the Christian community is gonna become this alternative world this, this display to anyone who's watching of what faithfulness to God does among people. A, a proof, if you will, that God is kinder towards his people than other gods would be. That we are a mechanism, we, through our friendships, or our relationships, for demonstrating God's love, not just to each other, but to anyone who's watching us love one another well. That kind of priority on the local church is all through the New Testament. It's not unique to John. So there is no identity any deeper that any two humans can share than identity in Christ, being adopted into God's family. And the church is meant as a display for how God treats his children. And, and I want to just say, I want to stop right here and say, I have seen in beautiful ways that have blown my mind, I have seen you time and time again in our church step up for each other in this way. Where you have heard about the needs that someone else has, has sometimes on a small scale, sometimes on church-wide scale. Or we've had people with major needs. We've let it known to you guys. And you have stepped up over and above anything that's ever even been asked. I've seen it over and over. It makes me so happy. And I believe God is glorified by the way you're loving one another right now. So thank you. I want you to hear that. I think it's important that we keep that in front of us as a model and a goal. That we, that we just go through our lives paying attention to each other's needs. Looking for things that others need that I have resources for. What is that for you? 
But I think there's a, there is another identity to, to go beyond John's clear focus here on, on what's closest at hand, on your brothers and sisters in Christ. The scriptures also teach us, though, that, that, that we are united at another level with everyone who bears God's image. That there is a kind of brotherhood or sisterhood that we have with all of humanity. Because we're all made in God's image, we share a common dignity. I don't have a trace of dignity that any other person anywhere else in the world doesn't have. So if we love what God loves, and if God so loved the world full of his image bearers that he sent his only son so that anyone who believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life, and if we're born of God, then love is going to show up in our care and attention to, in our drivenness toward the need of image bearers all around us. we're going to start to see the problems that other image bearers are living with as our problems. We're going to start seeing their needs as our needs. And we'll start seeing our resources as theirs. So let me just give you a couple examples. I mean, our time and place here in our city, racial disparities in income and education and... Uh, and, and all up and down the metrics they're glaring just one example last year did you realize I didn't until friends put this on my radar last year in our city there were 107 homicides that's a 20 year high the most since 1996 and 96 was the most in modern history most killings in modern history. We nearly matched it last year in our city. Nearly two out of three of those killed were African Americans. Nearly half of those killings occurred in a couple of fairly confined areas that are predominantly African American populations. There was, a, uh, there was an article in the Tennessee and on this, uh, this bad year, this horrible year, near the end of last year. One of the officials quoted said Nashville as a whole is a safe community and if you're not associated with people prone to criminal activity your probability of being a victim to crime is very small same official noted that every nearly every 2017 homicide victim had some tie to the perpetrator now I know where this person was coming from I think they're well meaning they're trying to protect people from living in fear And I suppose there is some comfort in what they said. If, if our main objective is to avoid being a victim. But, but love looks at the same facts through a different lens. Love looks at those facts and sees a community in crisis. That, that these killings weren't random. They were known. The victims were known. The violence was normal, expected even. They speak to a culture in which human life is cheap. Now, we might reassure ourselves by saying, so long as we don't know anyone who's violent, we'll be okay. 
we might keep our distance, even point the finger at those living in these communities and say, well, if they would just fill in the blank. Might even say something like, they, they just ought to recognize the value of human life. If we say stuff like that, though, friends, we need to know this. If we say things like that, if that's our response, that's what we feel or maybe even express, and what we're doing in that detachment, in that judgment, even if we don't realize it, what we're doing is accepting or affirming that those lives are cheap. That they lack the dignity that my life or my kids' lives or my friends' lives have. That these problems belong to those people, those others. In other words, we see a brother, a fellow bearer of God's image in need and we close our hearts. As if we didn't stand under a debt we could never repay. As if we haven't been rescued by His grace. So it isn't acceptable for us as Christians to take comfort from the fact that we're probably not going to be victims of crime if we don't know someone who's violent. It's not fair. It's not acceptable for us as Christians in part because those who are living in the distressed communities like the ones I've mentioned are living with problems they didn't create created centuries ago and inherited by them but even more even besides that we don't get to say that because you don't get to look at the despair of a fellow image bearer and close your heart to it not if God's love abides in you these are not their problems to fix they're our problems so so of course addressing problems like this is going to take wisdom I only just gave you an example of crime we didn't even talk about education we didn't talk about income disparities we didn't we didn't talk about the mountain of racial and economic inequality and, and the rippling effects throughout our city. When you do see it, when you see even a trace of it, what you're staring down is a mountain that looks too big to climb. And it's hard to know where to start. And if you think it's not a big mountain to climb, too complex for you to get your mind around, it's because you haven't thought about it long enough. It's because you haven't paid close enough attention to it. That can keep us frozen. It can keep us from doing anything. It's one of the things I love about this passage is that he just points us towards what's in front of us. John starts local. And we should too. So we shouldn't let the the scale of what's required to bring healing to our city and let it just blow us back from even taking one step. We should look at a brother in need and open our hearts. So we should start where we are. We should look around at at what opportunities are right in front of us. I don't do rock climbing. I have some friends who are really into it. And from what I can tell, if you're going to climb a mountain and you're going to do it rock climbing style, you're not going to try to map out every hold, every every place to put your foot, every move you're going to make on the route from the bottom to the top. What what you want to do is just look for what's next. Where can I get a grip? Where can I plant my foot? What would give me the leverage that I need to launch up just a little bit more up this mountain that we're trying to climb? I think that's got to be our focus when it comes to helping brothers and sisters in need. We, we don't have to climb the whole mountain tomorrow. But, but, but what, what hold has God given you right in front of you? Look around. Where has he put you? Start there. 
I'll say this. Let me go even further. One of the places he's put you is in a local church where some of your friends and fellow members have good momentum doing work like this to serve the hurting and desperate image bearers in our city. You could join them. You could take up one of their immediate opportunities. Corner to Corner is one of our ministry partners and much of the work that they do is in the neighborhoods that are uh, most heavily affected by the crime rate that I mentioned earlier. They have immediate needs for tutors, for an after-school tutoring program. If you're interested in giving any of your time to work with children who could be at risk, to just show them love by teaching them and showing an interest in their lives, they can connect you with opportunities like that this week if you'd like to. Preston Taylor Ministries is another ministry partner. A couple of our members are serving full-time. They have a program uh, also working with children in, some of these, in, in one of these same communities that was affected by this high crime rate last year. They have a program uh, coming up for, during the Natural Metro School Spring Break, a job shadowing program where they're going to match up children in their programming who will be out of school that week with, uh, with people who are working in business around town. Where this, one of these children can come and just shadow you while you do your job and see what it might look like to be in a field like yours. They can connect you with that opportunity, a, a one-time thing, uh, this week if you want to give them a call. Our church right now, we're, we're uh, raising a, a group as a kind of pilot project for a program called Nashville Neighbors through another ministry partner, Salome Health. This National Neighbors program uh, pairs up newly arrived refugee families with groups of six to eight adults from local churches. The idea of the program is to have a once or twice a month meeting with this family where you work through uh, a curriculum that Salome has developed that helps them understand basic health needs along with other things they need to get settled into life in a brand new place. These are some of the most vulnerable people that live around us. These are our brothers and sisters bearing God's image in need and they're right here. There's an opportunity to come talk to me or to Justin and we'll connect you with this pilot group. Uh, Next month, Project Connect Nashville, another one of our local ministry partners, is is sponsoring a medical dental unit coming into an apartment complex where they do a lot of work up in the Madison area. And they need doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, or nurses to come and staff this one-day clinic giving care to people who need it. Uh, I know a lot of you have medical training We'd love to have you be part of a team from our church to go and staff the, that clinic for the day. If, if that's something that you're interested in, you can come talk to me or talk to Justin after and we'll get you connected with it. There are opportunities all around. There are next grabs, right? We're not gonna try to climb this mountain tomorrow, but where can you put your foot? What, where can you get a grip? Start right here where God has put you in your local church with your friends who are doing what they can to try to serve our city and God will bless it. He will bless your willingness to jump in on that. I'm going to pray now that he will help us to take the opportunities he's put around us and to be confident in it. Father, we we want to display your love. We are bowled over sometimes by the scale of the problems that we can see, even right here in our own city. And we, we ask you to give us strength to stand, wisdom to find a hold, and and that you would use our community working together to encourage each other to to be more faithful to your calling on our lives and to clarify for those that were around what your love looks like. And I pray that you would do that work in us quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.